Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Just a reminder, if you hadn't already figured it out, we will not be having class on Christmas Day, and we will not be having class on New Year's Day. We will be having church. There will only be one service, I believe, at 11 o'clock. So do come, but we will not be having class those two Sundays. Uh, We will finish early today, so we can go get a seat for the cantata. I saw a video this week. I think the title of it was, Why Some Churches Should Not Do the Hallelujah Chorus. And uh, at the end of their Christmas program, Christ... uh, was raised up. I mean, they had him on ropes and they lifted him up in the air while the choir sang the Hallelujah Chorus. Unfortunately, he started to rotate and his robe had no back to it. (laughs) You can figure out the rest. Oh, the Santa stuff and the... Last week we did chapter 2, and we talked about the pursuit of wisdom, that we are called to pursue wisdom, it is to consume us. We are to search for it as we would search for treasure. And once again, we talked about the fact that the goal of all wisdom is the knowledge of who God is, and wisdom will protect us from those who would lead us astray, which brings us to chapter 2. Two, uh, chapter 3 today. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Once again, we have the admonition that Solomon gives to his son. We saw this back in chapter 2. It'll be in 3, it'll be in 4, and it'll be in a variety of chapters until we get to the end of this book. My son, do not forget... That is interesting to me because the implication is he has been taught. The implication is that most of us know what to do in a particular situation. The reality is, though, that we choose to forget. Yes, sometimes we just forget. But sometimes we choose to forget. We choose not to remember what we ought to do in a particular situation. So Solomon reminds his son, Son, remember, you know the truth, you've been exposed to the truth, you understood the truth, but in the heat of the moment, when the temptation is strong, there is this movement, this drive to forget. I mean, I don't know about you, but my children have repeatedly told me, you know, you said, why didn't you do something? Oh, I forgot. As if somehow that excuses everything. And I have to remind them sometimes that sometimes forgetting is the moral problem. The fact that you refuse to remember that which you ought to remember. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep your commandments, keep my commandments in your heart. Once again, we talked about this last week. The heart being the center of who we really are, our mind, will, and emotions. As we take the instruction, we take the commandments of God, and we put them into the core of our being. It's not just something on the periphery. It's not just something tacked on to make us look good in certain groups. 
You know, when I'm in this group, I have to put on this veneer. And when I'm in that group, I have to put on this veneer. No, it is at the center of who we are, an understanding of what God would have us to do in a particular situation. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Throughout the book, we are going to see blessings promised for those who do things God's way. Now, when you talk about prosperity in the modern world, we have reduced that basically to one thing, money. You'll see throughout the book of Proverbs that prosperity is a lot more than just money. In fact, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are, there are Proverbs that lead you to believe that the money is kind of the trivial part of it, the unimportant part of it. As we see throughout Scripture, blessed is the man who does things God's way. And that's what we see in the book of Proverbs. So we have more admonition in these two verses to seek after wisdom and truth. And then finally, in verse 3, we're going to start talking about what the path of wisdom really looks like. Let love and faithfulness, love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. If I were going to describe what the Christian life looks like, what the life that is honoring to God looks like, where would I start? I mean, what, what would I start with? Well, when Solomon wants to describe what the path of wisdom looks like, you know, we've been talking about it, and we will today, you know, the fear of the Lord. We've been talking about pursuing wisdom. But what does that look like when I leave this room and go outside? What does it look like? And the first two attributes that he gives are love and faithfulness. Faithfulness may be the easier of the two to describe, but not necessarily the easier of the two to understand. Faithfulness is basically being faithful to do that which you ought to do. If I tell somebody I'm going to do this, faithfulness says I do it. If I, as a Jewish reader of the book of Proverbs, when this was first written, am a member of the covenant, faithfulness says I keep that covenant. As a believer today, if I am faithful to Christ... I am faithful to the covenant. I keep the covenant. And we can get into long discussions, long discussions about what that means. Where Christ says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments, which we've bound on our heart. The verse before. The loved one to me is interesting. We have had long discussions in here before about the word love. There is no doubt that the world in which we live in today loves love. We love to talk about love. We love to make movies about love. We love to sing about love. We love love. But in my mind, it's also very true, we don't have a clue what that means. We believe today 
that love is an emotional response caused by something in somebody else or some situation, and I have this emotional response, and I call that love. As I've mentioned before, Teresa and I do marriage mentoring as part of the marriage mentoring program of the church where we work with young couples who are about to get married. Okay? And we have a lesson and we talk about love. The husband is to love the wife and the wife is to hmm, submit to the... And I talk about the fact that, you know, in our society today, we hate the word submission. We really do. But we love the word love. I believe if we really understood what the word love meant, most of the people in our society wouldn't like it any more than they like the word submission. So what does love really mean? Love is basically looking out for the good of the beloved. Simple enough. The good of the beloved. But what does that mean in everyday life? My young child, say three years old, starts to run in the street. And I run and I grab them and I tell them very forcefully, don't run in the street. And they're upset because they wanted to do something and I wouldn't let them do it. I hindered them for, from fulfilling their true calling to run into the street. Is it love to let them do what they want to do? Or is it love to hinder them from doing that which we know will bring them harm? Throughout the book of Proverbs, and we actually talked about this two weeks ago, we will see the idea of giving someone a rebuke, telling someone you're going down the wrong path, stop it. And what the book of Proverbs will tell us is that that is one of the highest indicators of love. Not just, well, you go do your own thing and I'm not going to bother you, and that's how we express love. It is not an emotional response. Now, there should be an emotional response. The passion, the emotion should follow the choice of the will to do that which is for the good of the beloved. The emotion should be there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about some dry thing that nobody wants to participate in. The question is, what is driving your actions? Is it the emotion or is it the choice of the will? Now, the good thing about a description of love is that the Bible gives us a very clear definition of what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. One of the most famous chapters in the Bible, quoted at weddings all the time. But what does it really mean? Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrong, does not delight in evil, rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
I would like to be able to tell you that all of these attributes are highly praised and valued in our society today. But I'm not sure they are. In fact, you can kind of go down the list, you know, envying. We like looking at other people's things and wanting other people's things. And a lot of commercials are driven by the fact, you know, your neighbor has something and you don't have it. Don't you want it? They have a 54-inch TV. You've got to have at least a... And on and on he goes. Driven by envy. Does not boast. Is not proud. We have made a cult out of the idea of self-esteem. You need to be proud of who you are. Well, I hate to tell you this. What you really are is a sinner in need of a God. A Savior. That's what you are. Is not rude. How much of our society today is basically rude? I mean, let's face it. I read a book several years ago by an uh, English lady. The title of the book was Speak to the Hand. And it was basically about rudeness in our society. And she was actually writing from a, I mean, she's a British author, so she spent more time giving examples from England. But it's horrible. We live in a society where I feel that I have the right to be rude to you if you don't do what I want you to do. And the book was full of numerous examples. The book is written by the same lady who wrote the book uh, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. You ever seen that book? It's about grammar. <laughs> you, you've never heard this story. The panda bear walks into the bar, the restaurant, eats something, and then shoots the, the owner and leaves. And he says what well, says right here in the, the guidebook, that pandas eat shoots and leaves. <laughs> it's all how you punctuate the sentence. It's an old story. Is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. We live in a society that has enshrined the expectation that you are going to seek out what is good for you and your neighbor is going to seek out what's good for your neighbor and hopefully you don't kill each other in the process. If we're civilized, we're nice about it. But in reality, we're all seeking our own good. Is not equally angered, keeps no record of wrong. Okay, now let's not have a show of hands. How many of you have a record book in your hand of every time somebody's done you wrong? In your head, of every time that somebody's done you wrong? Don't show your hand. You know, little mental note. Oh yeah, they did it again. That person did this again. And we keep note of that. That's not love. Rejoices with the truth. Oh, does not delight in evil. Rejoices with the truth. Do you rejoice when good things happen to other people? Or do you secretly wish it had happened to you? Or do you secretly wish, since they're not that nice a person anyway, that something really rotten had happened to them? Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. How often does it protect? How often does it trust? Always. But wait a minute, if I do that, 
people will take advantage of me. Yeah, probably. They probably will. Okay? This is what love is. Back to the book of Proverbs. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. If I am living the life of wisdom, I start with love and I start with faithfulness. It is interesting the connection between love and faithfulness. If I loved you but wasn't faithful, then tomorrow I may change my mind and no longer love you. In the same way, if I was faithful but really didn't love you, all that essentially means is I may do nasty things to you tomorrow just like I'm doing nasty things to you today. The two go together. But it is very difficult that the two go together because love today may be easy because things are going well. Love tomorrow may be more difficult because things aren't going well. Love the next year may be really, really hard, but faithfulness says, I'm going to do it today, tomorrow, and a year from now. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Once again, put them at the center of your being. Love is not to be just a veneer that we wrap around our lives. I'm coming to church. I need to act loving. I'm at work. I don't need to act loving. I can act any way I want to. I'm in this situation. I'm in that situation. But wait a minute. If I'm seeking after the good of other people, if I am not self-seeking, if I am not easily angered, if I am always trusting people, won't they take advantage of me? Probably. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. That's the promise that is attached to this instruction to not let love and faithfulness leave you. Then you will win favor with God. That part we understand. But man, if man doesn't value these things, why would we win favor? Because the reality is that even those who are corrupt, when they see true love and faithfulness, have to step back and go, huh, that's, that's interesting. That's different. That's odd, but in a good way. Go ahead. What about always trust when you get an email from Nigeria? You, 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 don't, you don't respond to those? But, but he has some money he wants to give you. I read an article, and it was actually in a computer magazine, 
talking about those uh, frauds. And there's a group of people who say, start responding to them, and they'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll do... And they start conning the con people. And apparently, the people doing the conning are very gullible. I mean, it never occurred to them that somebody would actually play them. And, oh, man, they get all kinds of stuff out of them. It's all a game anyway. Always trust. Let's answer that question, because that's a good question. I was actually waiting for somebody. What if you have the... How close should I make this relative? Uh, the no-good brother-in-law, okay? Is that too close? The no-good brother-in-law who is always asking for money. You always give them money. They always waste the money on some horrible, wretched thing that isn't possibly ever going to work and is probably ruining their life. But you read this verse and it says, always trust. So you always give them... No, you don't. What did we begin with? Love is doing that which is best for the beloved. If the drug addict comes and says, give me a hundred bucks so I can buy another fill in the blank with your drug of choice, you don't give it to them. And you don't give it to them out of love. Giving it to them isn't a sign of love. At all. Not giving to it to them is the sign of love. Now, here comes the hard part, though. It may require you to do other things that you are very uncomfortable with. I mean, my son has told me he's done this several times. I've done it before, and he, I guess he picked it up. You know, you're, you're walking into McDonald's, pick your fast food place, and somebody's out there saying, can I have five bucks for some food? What do you do? You take them inside and you buy them a meal. Maybe you don't give them the five bucks because you really don't know what they're going to do with it. But if they're really hungry, you have an obligation, huh, to feed them. That is an act of love. But you know what? Giving them the five bucks may be too easy. Not giving them the five bucks may too e be too easy. Feeding them, that may be hard. Because you know what? Then you might have to sit and talk to them. Oh, gosh, not again. But you know what? That's what love does. For God so loved that he gave. And guess what? We're supposed to do that too. Not only do we have this nice definition in Hebrews of what love is, we also have the perfect picture of what love is in the person of Christ. Here's an experiment for you. Just, I mean, randomly pick one of the four Gospels and start going through it and looking at Jesus' interaction with people. And you will see what love is looks like the woman at the well love the woman caught in the act of adultery love the pharisees wanting to come after him you brood of vipers but you know what that was love i think it's interesting this definition of love says not easily angered 
Christ got angry. He got angry when his father, who he loved, when the father's temple was defamed by making it into a marketplace. That was love. I get angry for a lot of reasons. None of them are good. Okay? Not a one of them. Yes, Jerry? Building relationships. But we don't want to do that. That's hard. Alan, did you have another comment? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> did y'all hear that? His house is for lease on Craigslist if you want to go get it, but he doesn't know anything about it. Love, well, let's think about this for a moment, okay? Let's keep going. We're going to get back to this. Proverbs 3, 5, go home today. And if at some point in your life you have not memorized Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7, do it. Okay? If your grandkids have not memorized it, go home and teach it to them. Are you ready? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Nothing, nothing, nothing that we're going to say in this whole series on Proverbs is going to make sense if we don't understand this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. The world has a form of wisdom. If you remember when we did 1 Corinthians a year or so ago, we studied uh, chapter 1 where it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the, intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And it goes on to talk about the wisdom of this world and the foolishness of Christ. Now, is Christ foolishness? No. But by the wisdom of the world, the gospel is foolishness. By the wisdom of God, the ways of the world are foolishness. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Proverbs. The way, the path, the journey of the fool does this. And fill in the blank with your any bad thing you want to put in there. It leads to destruction. It is not that the world doesn't have an idea of how to do things. It does. 
You, in your sinful nature, have an idea of how to do things. You have an idea of what is smart. You have an idea of what will get you ahead. You have an idea of what will help you to prosper. The question is, who gets to make the judgment? Are you going to follow the wisdom of God, or are you going to follow the wisdom of the world? You have to make that decision. Now, as good 21st century American Christians, I know what we do, okay? We take our Bible, and we take the latest 10 self-help books, and we put them in the blender, and we hit puree. And what comes out is modern-day 21st century American Christianity. Kind of a little self-help gospel, kind of a little bit of self-esteem, kind of a little bit of love your neighbor as yourself, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it reeks. We have a problem in that we are finite human beings. We are fallen human beings. And we have a tendency to do things that finite, sinful human beings would do. Back to my illustration just a while ago. The three-year-old runs in the street. And you, as a loving adult, stop that three-year-old from running into the busy street. And you do it out of love. That three-year-old is now 25 or 35, or 75. And they begin to believe they have all the answers. Nobody, but nobody, has the right to tell me not to run into the street. Now, the truth of the matter is, they're probably smart enough not to run into the street. I mean, let's face it, people do get, you know, you figure things out. I don't run into the street when there's cars coming by. I can figure that one out. But when it comes to living a wise life, why do I think that I, as a finite, sinful human being, at 25, 35, or 75, have it figured out apart from God and the wisdom that he reveals to us my pride says i am the master of my fate i am in control of everything i am smarter than those around me therefore i am probably smarter than god himself okay we wouldn't ever say that last part we would never say that last part But when we get into a situation and the scripture clearly says do this and we choose to do something else, we're saying I'm smarter than God. We're saying God doesn't really understand this situation. God doesn't really understand what's at stake. God doesn't really understand my need for true happiness. And we go do it our own way. We do our own thing. The question is, are you going to trust your wisdom 
Are you going to trust God's? And if you haven't resolved that situation, or if you're resolving that situation on a case-by-case basis, that's almost worse. I get into a particular situation, I know what the world says, I know what God says, and if God can defend himself, if God can come up with good reasons why I should do it his way, then in this particular case, I'll do it God's way. But I may do it the world's way. Why is God being judged by us? Why don't we let our behavior be judged by God? Because the reality is, are you ready for this? Ultimately, it is going to be judged by God. What did it say? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. If God says don't go that way and you have no idea why, you still don't go that way. And it may very well be that you don't know why you don't go that way, this side of eternity. But if God says don't go that way, it does not matter how many television personalities, how many celebrities, how many best-selling authors say, that way's a lot of fun. It doesn't matter. Are you going to trust God or not is what it boils down to. Now, this verse is not telling us to be stupid. It is telling us to be intelligent. It is telling us to be knowledgeable. It is telling us to be wise. The question, though, is, what is the starting point? Do you start from God and his revelation and use all the mental power that God has given you to go from there to how should I live my life? Or do you start from a self-centered, man-centered philosophy and go from there and use my God-given intelligence and end up someplace totally wrong. You know what the world today does? It starts from a man-centered, materialistic, I'm using that in the philosophical term of matter is all there is, and guess what? Some of the things that the Bible teaches just don't apply anymore. Surprise, surprise. Well, of course they don't, because you started in the wrong place. You started your search for wisdom by denying God to begin with. And surprise, surprise, you end up someplace else. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. When push comes to shove, do things God's way. Back to the description of love. You ready for this? Love does not say that we're stupid. Never has, never will. But love may drive you to do things that you don't understand. It may drive you to have a relationship with the prisoner that you don't really want to associate with. It may drive you to do something for your neighbor who you really don't like. It may drive you to do things for your spouse 
that you really don't feel like doing. Well, maybe I shouldn't use that example. <laughs> Love as an emotion makes sense in the eyes of the world. Love which seeks the good of the beloved doesn't make much sense in the eyes of the world. Because all of a sudden, you are not in control. You are not the one seeking out what's best for you. You're seeking what's best for someone else. In all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him. What does that mean? Think about it. Think about him. Put that in the front of your brain when you approach a situation. Generally, we approach a difficult situation or even a not-so-difficult situation. And we have all this wisdom of the world that comes to us, and we go, okay, I'll do what everybody else is doing. When the first thought should be, what would God have me do? And God may have a variety of opinions. I don't know. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He will remove difficulties from your life. Now, don't be confused. That doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. We just finished First and Second Corinthians, and we saw the life of Paul. And the life of Paul, you'd be hard-pressed to call it easy. But Paul knew what he was supposed to do. He was focused on what he was supposed to do. His path was set before him, and he followed that path. And you know what? He did it joyfully. Kind of weird, isn't it? He will make your paths straight. The vision is, is that, you know, the, the, the ancient king was going to go visit this city, and they would go out and they'd clear the roads before he came. You know, take the rocks out of the way, smooth it out, so that it was an easier path for him to go down. You, all of us, have lived life long enough to either in our own life or in the lives of people we do love, seeing how stupid mistakes just continually make their life or our life more difficult than it has to be. We can just see that. It is just blindingly obvious. If you hadn't done that, 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 and that, you wouldn't be having this difficulty now. It's just obvious. But you know what? In the heat of the moment, it wasn't obvious. But you know what? To an infinite, holy God, it's obvious all the time. And he wants to share that wisdom with us. He sends wisdom, the personification, the woman that we saw in chapter 2, to stand in the street yelling, pleading with people to come follow wisdom. But I've got a better idea. I think I'll go do it my way instead. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not be wise in your own eyes. We should be humble and we should seek God's wisdom. And guess what? That will make us truly wise. Not in our own eyes, but in the eyes of God 
And I do believe in the eyes of the world. I do believe that there are pagans in this world today who when they see godly wisdom go, huh, I do need some of that. Joseph is carted off in slavery to Egypt. But guess what? When he ran Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house was well run. And Potiphar, a pagan, knew that. When he was thrown into prison, when Joseph ran the prison, the prison was well run, and the jailkeeper knew it. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carted off, they knew wisdom when they saw it. The problem is, we just don't see it enough. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Do not see how close you can get. Don't see how much of the world's wisdom and how much of God's wisdom you can put in the blender and push puree and see what you come out with. But that's what we do. Why do we do that? Well, that's what everybody else is doing. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. This is not a call to be stupid. This is a call to be wise. But it is not wisdom as the world sees wisdom. It is wisdom how God sees wisdom. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that each of us would seek after your wisdom above all else. I pray, Lord, that today love and faithfulness would not depart from us. As we interact with those around us, I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate your love and your faithfulness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.